You are listening to the Talking with the Expert series presented by the CS Mod Center for Human Growth and Development. Good evening, everybody. Uh, we want to welcome you to the new series at the CS Mod Center that is Talking with Experts in Women Health and Reproduction. Uh, my name is Gilmore. I am the director of the CS Mod Center uh, for, for Human Development. And uh, we will be having the serial lectures uh, every, every uh, once a month. And our plan is to invite local and as well national experts in different aspects of women's health. This is an interactive uh, meeting. We want to have your opinion and to share uh, the knowledge that our, our experts have with you but more important, we want to answer the questions that you may have. So please feel free to send uh, your questions either by the chat or uh, we will open uh, for questions at the middle of the program uh, and you can unmute yourself or at the end of the program also you can unmute yourself and ask the questions that you have. So, it's a great pleasure for me to initiate this serious lectures with, again, a leader in a field that is of high relevance in women's health, that has cervical cancer. And my guest of tonight is Dr. Radhika Gogoi. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Dr. Moore, for the chance to be here today. It really is my pleasure. Um, to be the inaugural speaker for the CS Mott Center seminar series um, on a topic that is really near and dear to my heart. So thank you again. Thank you, Radhika. So where don't we start? Tell us a little about yourself. Um, so my name is Radhika Gogoi. I am a gynecologic oncologist at Carmanos Cancer Institute and Wayne State. I am new to Detroit. Um, I moved here about a year and a half ago, before a little bit before COVID. Um, but prior to that time, I've been practicing gynecologic oncology um, for the last 12 years in central Pennsylvania. So it's, um, it's been great to move here and um, the opportunities and the challenges that um, come with academic medicine. So Danica, let me ask you a personal question now. Why gynecologic oncology, which we know is one of the most difficult areas in gynecology? Um, so, you know, I think most gynecologic oncologists have a passion um, for taking care of women. That is really why we choose the specialty that we choose. Um, I think the relationship that a cancer doctor and their patients have is a very unique one. Um, it lasts not only from the diagnosis, but sort of for their lifetime. And, and it's not only with the patient, but with their families as well. And then the other part of why I chose is, is the chance to do prevention. So um, I think we all would very much like to be out of our not having to need us anymore as a cancer specialist. Um, but since that's not the case, we, we and I um, are firm advocates for prevention, whether that is screening, vaccination, Which is um, what we're going to talk to this evening. Yeah. So this evening is about the cervix. Why the cervix? Right, so um, I have a, a little slide thinking that maybe it would be easier um, kind of to show in a pictorial fashion kind of why the cervix is important. Um, and so what you'll see on the slide is really a depiction of, of of the uterus and the cervix. So the cervix is really the very lower part of the uterus, so the end of the uterus. And you can think about the cervix as sort of a gateway and it's a gateway to the uterus. So it has a number of very unique functions and specifically um, the cervix of course prevents infections from going up into the uterus. Um, it is important in terms of the health of the vagina and in terms of pregnancy, it's really important in that early cervical dilatation can increase a woman's risk of having a premature delivery. Um, so it really is a gate that is separating the internal reproductive organs with the rest of the world. Very much so. Yes. And we know that there is a lot of bacteria, microorganisms 
in the lower reproductive tract. So the cervix is extremely important in controlling what it passes through. Yes, yes, absolutely. Prevents infections from developing within the uterus. And then of course, as a gynecologic oncologist, it's important to me because oftentimes it is sort of the host, you can think of it as for a number of infections that occur, um, occur in women. So it is exposed to a lot of things. So that means also is in high risk. And th that goes to my next question. What are the major concerns or complications in women health related to the cervix? So there, there are a number. Um, we talked a little bit about pregnancy and the complications. So the cervix during pregnancy is important because it maintains the uterus and the pregnancy within the uterus. So early dilation of the cervix or softening of that cervix um, will lead to potentially premature delivery. Um, the cervix can be the site for, the whole, for a number of infections, including bacterial infections, viral infections, um, and then can be the site of obviously more significant changes in the cells of the cervix, including precancerous changes and then mm. cervical cancer. Cervical cancer, which is one of the topics that we want to we want to talk this this evening. What are the main causes of cervical cancer? So the the majority of cervical cancer is caused by an infection with the human papillomavirus. So you've all probably heard of HPV, and that is the human papillomavirus. It is a DNA virus um, that is, in the majority of cases, is a sexually transmitted infection. Um, now. The human papillomavirus is very common. Um, there are some studies that show that about nine out of 10 women or seven out of 10, depending on the study of reproductive age will have this infection mm. at some point in their life. Um, importantly, most of the infections with HPV really don't cause any changes. There are only very specific types of HPV that really lead to more significant changes in the surface. So, so that is a very important aspect that you mentioned. So if a patient or some young lady comes and say, oh, I got positive for HPV, should I be concerned that I'm going to have cancer? Or you are indicating that that may not be the case, that there is some, not all the viruses are created equal. Yeah, that's a good, absolutely. So the majority of HPV viruses, as you said, really don't cause any significant complications. Um, there are viruses, HPV types that are either low risk or high risk, for example. Um, low risk sometimes can cause no symptoms. They can cause um, condyloma, which is- Condyloma, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> now you lost me. Uh, what did you say, can? So uh, condyloma. Condyloma, what is condyloma? Right, so condyloma, small bumps that are associated with an HPV viral infection. Uh, the generic term would be warts, for example. Um, there can be, at, on any, in any area, they can affect both men and women. So HPV, important to recognize is that HPV infection doesn't, isn't limited to women alone. Men and can and suffer I think we same. have a question. We have a question about that. Uh, why don't we bring out our, our members, uh, somebody in the, uh, I saw that there is a question about men and HPV. Um, at least there is one of the, uh, yeah, there is a question. All these complications in HPV can affect men. Yes, very important that yes, HPV infection is not limited to women alone. Um, in women, we can screen for HPV infections using a pap smear. In men, there is no screening test to see whether they carry HPV. So men who are infected with HPV or have a higher risk strain can have the same condyloma or genital warts. Um, other cancers that are associated with HPV infection in men um, are slightly different than those in women. So for example, men that are infected with the high-risk strains of HPV or HPV cancerous types can be affected with penile cancers, anal mm. cancers. Um, and now what's important to recognize is that oropharyngeal cancers or cancers of the head and neck or the throat are also associated with HPV. So if I get in the message that you're telling us is that 
the cause of cervical cancer is not really a disease of the woman. This is a partner disease. And we should be looking both at the man and the woman. Yes. Now, in the man, it's not only the sexual way the transmission of HPV. I mean, a man can get HPV by different uh, exposure or it's only a sexual transmitter. So the majority of HPV infections are sexually transmitted um, in that there is some contact with hands or genitals, but there are other ways. So for example, babies can be infected with HPV yeah. transplacentally or through the vagina at the time of delivery. It's less common. So really the most common way that HPV is transmitted is really through sexual contact. Or sometimes going to common pools, uh, towels also could be a source of, of HPV in people. Yes, less common, but certainly there are, there are cases of that, yes. Fantastic. Dr. Martin, do we have another question? We have some questions uh, from the uh, audience. Uh, can men transmit HPV to women who do not have it? Yes, there's, uh, so the transmission from, of HPV can go in either direction, meaning that it can certainly go from an infected man to a woman, as well as from the woman to the man. So um, again, to the point that HPV is really not a disease that affects only, or a virus that affects only women, um, but it is really a, a equally effect, affects both sexes. It's an excellent question, but again, I like what you, you are explaining because really in many cases, we look at cervical cancer or, or HPV like a, a woman's disease. And where we are understanding for you, it's, it's, it's not the case. There is a case in both men and women. So the, the, the partner, the, the couple should be approached when there is this, this type of clause. Absolutely. And to the point is that really that, you know, while cervical cancer rates have stabilized across the United States and maybe even going down, the rates of head and neck or HPV infecting the, the head and neck and the throat, those rates are going up. Hmm. Um, and unfortunately, those rates are mostly in men. And so we really have to be very cognizant as a community about treating both sexes and educating both men and women, boys and girls, about the risks of HPV. That, I think, is a very important message that we have to take in consideration. We have another question. Uh, can men get cancer through HPV? And I think more or less you mentioned that and maybe clarify. Uh, sure. So yes, absolutely. Men can um, get cancer through high-risk. No cervical cancer, because as long as I know, men don't have cervix. Yes. Yeah. But you were surprised that some people had a pink, could pink. Yes. No, no not cervical they don't have cancer. Cervix. Um, but certainly penile cancers, anal cancers, and again, now most commonly head and neck cancers. So and they will appear, the lesions will be similar like you will see in the woman. Will, yes, the, the presenting symptoms will be similar. They will be bumps, lesions, things that, you know, bleeding um, that is not normal, growing, uh, a lesion that grows. Um, any of those things should really prompt someone to get evaluated by their doctors. Very good. So I know we have a lot of questions about that, but so we will go to those some subjects. Let's focus a little about the cervical cancer. To understand a little more, what is cervical cancer? And before you, you mention, let's clarify, what type of, of HPV will induce cervical cancer? So there are obviously a large number of strains of HPV. Um, the high-risk strains specifically, when you hear, you'll hear us talk about HPV 16 or right. HPV 18. Um, these are strains of HPV um, and those are the strains that are most commonly associated with cervical cancer. And I think this aspect is important because I know there is a lot of interest in understanding virus today because we are in the COVID-19. And you know that you talk about uh, SARS-CoV-2 and that there is this H1 variant and so on. It's the same in, in papilloma. So it's the same family, but there are variants and what I mean with variants is they have modifications in the genome. And those modifications is what it makes that virus to be carcinogenic in a way. Yeah, can we say that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. HPV so, is very, it's a well-known, well-established carcinogenic. So not all the viruses will induce cancer, but when they acquire some potentials, 
those without those viruses with those characteristics lead to the cancer. So that's also important to your point, Dora, is that the it's important to know which of those strains it is because the vaccine that is used in HPV or the HPV vaccine contains is protective against those high risk types of viruses. So the vaccine doesn't protect against all HPV. So the current vaccine is a nine valence vaccine, meaning that it protects against nine subtypes of HPV, the most important of which are 16 and 18, which we were talking about. But it also does protect against some of the low risk strains of HPV, which may cause genital warts or condylomas. That is painful and so on. I think we have a lot of questions about HPV and vaccine. So I, before we start answering all those questions, and thank you for, for your participation, let's introduce a little about cervical cancer, especially what is the symptoms and its development? So cervical cancer, actually, thankfully, um, is a fairly slow-growing disease. Um, you know, the, the studies that we have suggest that it takes anywhere between six to 10 years um, for a normal cell to become a cancerous cervical cell. So um, that gives us a lot of opportunity for screening, for prevention, and for treatment, really, if we, if, if we have that long a period of time to intervene. Um, the symptoms of cervical cancer are, are fairly, um, I mean, it, they're fairly, you, people will notice these. So for example, um, bleeding after intercourse is, is a big presenting symptom abnormal uterine bleeding when you shouldn't be having them. So in between your periods, um, profuse or a very smelly malodorous, we call it vaginal discharge. Um, those are all symptoms that patients may notice. Um, and that when the patient cause. sees those symptoms, what they should do? Right. So if you have these symptoms, you certainly should seek medical care. Um, some patients get their gynecologic care with their family physician or a primary care doctor. Um, some get their gynecologic care with a gynecologist. So any of those specialties um, would be where you should go next. Most importantly, it is to seek care. Do not delay, not to Don't wait. wait. Don't yes, wait. That is, that is absolutely the approach. So if the symptoms are there, the patient will come with a gynecologist. What is the gynecologist going to do? Um, so Generally speaking, you the gynecologist is going to do a pelvic exam. So you do a speculum exam, depending on the significance or the severity of the symptom and what they see in the exam, um, they may do a pap smear. Oh, the magical word, the pap smear. When a woman should have this pap smear? So the current recommendations of these change, but the recommendations today are that women after the age of 21 should get a pap smear. When? Every month, every three months, what is your recommendation? Right, so the recommendations really vary by age. So between the ages of 21 and 30, the guidelines specify, depending on the type of pap that you do, whether it's just a pap smear or whether it's a pap smear along with HPV testing, anywhere between three and five years. But the most important thing, again, is that screening should start at the age of 21, regardless of whether a person is sexually active or not. Obviously, if you're younger, but you are having symptoms, that shouldn't stop you from going to see a gynecologist. You should, you should absolutely see, seek medical care for symptoms such as the ones that we were describing. And there was a question uh, related to that, whether by looking at HPV, the pap smear is necessary or not? Right, so at this point, um, depending on the type of HPV that's identified on a pap smear, the recommendation is to still do a pap smear regardless of your, whether you're HPV positive or not, um, because the algorithm for what you do with that result changes depending on what the pap smear shows. At some point, I expect that HPV testing will will make pap smears obsolete, but we're not quite there yet. Fantastic. Uh, let's move a little on to, into in terms of the cancer, understanding the cancer, and then we will talk about the prevention and the vaccine. So what are the different stages of cervical cancer? Um, so cervical cancer, much like most cancers, are 
kind of divided into four stages. Um, there's an early stage and an early stage, what I call sort of an intermediate stage, which is called locally advanced, and then a late stage. Um, so the early stage is really um, cancer that is just limited to the cervix. Um, and an early, a, a locally advanced, maybe cervical cancer that is a little bit more than just the cervix alone may involve the sidewall, what we call the parametria. And then an advanced cervical cancer is cervical cancer that has gone outside of the pelvis. And we know that the best, uh, the best uh, diagnostic prognosis is if it still is local. Absolutely. Anything that move out is a different story. Absolutely. So identifying the disease early is critical. Yep. Uh, treatment. What are the treatments for cervical cancers? So it really depends on where on, on the stage of the cervical cancer. So um, an early stage cervical cancer may be treatable with surgery alone. Um, anything more than cervical cancer that is just confined to the cervix really needs a combination of both chemotherapy and radiation. Um, advanced cervical cancer, so cervical cancer that has gotten outside of the cervix, probably will be treated with just chemotherapy. Mm. And what is the prognosis of cervical cancer diagnosed still in the early stage, in the local stage? So actually, it's very good. So the majority of early stage cervical cancers can be cured with surgery. Um, again, the goal is to catch the diagnosis at it as early a stage as possible so that one, it offers the best outcome and it offers the best options for treatment. So if I understand what you're telling me now, the second message is don't wait. If there is any sign, go and find what is the problem. Because if it's early detected, the prognosis is much, much better than in late disease. Absolutely. What we tell people is to be your own advocate. And as we go in medicine, prevention is the best thing. Now, that brings us to the subject that we started, and now that I think of the interest of everybody, uh, the vaccine, again. And I have a question from one of the, uh, the people in the, in the audience why does HPV vaccine only say to work when given at age 11, 26, and not as effective after age 26? Yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, the earlier, actually probably prior to a year or two ago, the recommendations was were for the vaccine to be given between the ages of nine and 26 in both boys and girls, men and women. Since that time, we um, there is some data and some recommendations that suggest that HPV vaccination should be given to any person up to the age of 45. And the idea really is that vaccines are more effective prior to actually having an um, initiation of activity, of sexual activity, or being infected with HPV. So you're less likely to be infected by HPV at an earlier age than at a later age. And thus, the efficacy of the vaccine is better if it's given early as opposed to if it's given late. And I think it's also because of the maturation that the reproductive tract is having. A young lady is still the walls of the vagina and the cervix are thin, uh, more, let's say, prone to be wounded, mm -hmm. if you want. As a woman mature, it starts becoming a stronger, if we can call it. Is that correct? Yeah. So that, that is the reason of the sensitivity, if we call it. So it's important that the earlier you get your children vaccinated, the better. Um, so now, can the HPV vaccine cure cervical cancer? No, no. HPV vaccine is not a therapeutic vaccine at this point. Um, it is prevention. So the idea is that the goal of the HPV vaccine is really to prevent HPV infections, not to treat HPV infections after they have already developed at least not cervical cancer. Yeah. We have another question here. What is the vaccine and what is made of? Yeah, that's a great question. So we actually, I have a, a little graphic that just shows kind of what the HPV virus looks like. Because um, I, I think that it's important in terms of understanding at least what the vaccine is made of. So this is just a, a, a pictograph of really what the HPV virus 
looks like. And so what you can see is the very surface of the virus contains um, what we call capsid proteins. And so they're um, in a rosebud configuration and they're kind of all over the surface of the virus. Can you point to the, so that people will look at it, because you're telling me capsid, it sounds to me like Chinese. Uh, those so, are, yeah. okay. So perfect. those are the capsid proteins. Now the vaccine, The flowers of the virus yes, that are pumping up. Yes, Which absolutely. also in COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, they have also these flowers that I call the crown. Yes. That is the reason we call it corona. Right, absolutely. So for the HPV virus and the HPV vaccine, what you're getting is really just those proteins alone. So just those capsid proteins without any viral DNA. So it's important to understand that the vaccine is made up only of those proteins, doesn't contain any HPV DNA, um, and then is given to produce an immune response to prevent further HPV infections. And that has been a misconception of many people thinking that when you get the vaccine, you're getting the, the whole virus. No, not the case at all. And again, I mean, the vaccine has been around now for at least 15 years. Um, so it has a very long safety record. We have a lot of data on it. Um, both safety data and now efficacy data as well, meaning how well does it do what it's supposed to do. Um, and the data suggests that really it decreases the risk of developing HPV-affected, yeah. HPV-related infections like the cervical precancer and cervical cancer. Here is an, an interesting question and a tough question. So of uh, one of our audience. If you are vaccinated against HPV, can you still become a carrier? That's the first question. Maybe you want to answer that and before, sure. before I continue reading sure. the other one. So yes. So just because you are vaccinated against HPV, uh, you can still be a carrier. You can still have abnormal pap smears. You can still develop precancerous changes as well as cancer. The goal is to decrease that risk. Um, so because you get vaccinated doesn't mean that women can not go to a gynecologist or get their screening pap smears. The recommendation is still that those screenings continue regardless of whether you're vaccinated or not. And, and I think this is a very important aspect because it's also a confusion that we have sometimes. We are now dealing with the vaccine against COVID-19. And I apologize that I bring this, but I think we can learn a lot from the two things. A vaccine is not a capsule that then isolates us from, from the rest of the viruses and from the rest of the things. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we still are in the middle of this soup of viruses. It's only that the vaccine is making our immune system strong. Mm -hmm. So we don't get very sick. Yes, Yeah. yes, absolutely. Decreases the risk of developing cancer or precancer. But it doesn't mean that once I have the vaccine, I can do whatever I want in my sex life. No, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but it has another question still in that if a man has been vaccinated and then has sex with an HPV positive patient, can he then pass on HPV to another partner? That's a challenging question. It, it is. Um, but I think the idea is the same, which is that even if you are vaccinated, you potentially can still carry the HPV virus. And so if you carry the HPV virus, you potentially can then also transmit the HPV virus. So it doesn't change the risk. It doesn't, yes, essentially the answer is yes, you can still become a carrier and still potentially transmit that to another part. The vaccine is only protecting the individual that will not become very sick, will not become sick potentially. Uh, I have a question here. Can you have HPV and abnormal pups if you have a hysterectomy? Yeah, so HPV can affect both the cervix and the vagina. Um, and so you can still have abnormal pups even after you've had a hysterectomy. Especially if the hysterectomy was could you, more... Sorry, could you tell us a little bit? What is hysterectomy? <laughs> so uh, a hysterectomy, a, a total 
hysterectomy is something that removes both the uterus and the cervix. Um, I'm going to caveat a little bit in that you can do something called, a, well, well, you'll hear the term partial hysterectomy. Yeah. Um, or in more in a more medical term, it's called a supracervical hysterectomy, where the uterus is removed but the cervix is still you left keep, You keep the door. You remove the the, the door. Right. The, the, you you remove the room. <laughs> you it. keep the gate. That is the analogy. Yeah. Um, and so, if you still have the cervix in, the recommendation is to still have the same screening that you would have had if you never had the hysterectomy. Now, if the cervix is removed and it was for fibroids, nothing to do with cervix or abnormal pap smears, then you really don't need any more pap smears. That is the recommendation. But if the hysterectomy was done for the reasons of abnormal pap, then the standard surveillance is still indicated. And what would be the reason again, I'm thinking of keeping the cervix? What is the advantage of keeping the cervix if it's not, if the patient doesn't have cervical cancer, of course. So uh, a lot of times it is patient preference or physician preference. Um, removing the cervix can sometimes, one, it can increase the length of time of the surgery. Um, patients that have had previous abdominal surgeries, it can be a little bit more difficult to get the cervix out. Um, there are patients that feel that it, um, it, in, it taking out the cervix um, limits sexual their sexual activity, um, although the data doesn't suggest. That was my question. Those concerns are real or not? The, the data doesn't suggest that there is any difference in sexual activity if you remove the cervix or keep the cervix in. And the, the, the recuperation of the patient is much better by removing the cervix and the uterus or just the uterus in terms of how the patient then will come out of the surgery. Is there any difference? There is no difference. There is no difference. So at the end is a decision between the physician and evaluating the situation and the patient. Absolutely. Just like everything else, it should be really a risk benefit discussion um, made between the physician and the patient. Uh, we have another question here about the, the vaccine. I hope you are an expert in the in immunology and it's in not, I'm sure that you can help me with this. Uh, the question we have here is, is there a significant difference in the CASPI composition between different strains of HPV? That's a very good question. So yes, my understanding is that the different HPV strains have different um, capsid components or the makeup of the capsid is different. And so um, yes, the capsid composition is also different between the different HPV strains. And that's the reason it doesn't protect over against all the HPVs. That's right. The vaccine is mainly for the protection of those, the, the strains, the 16 and 19, who are the most dangerous for, for cervical cancer. That's right. And for the cancers in the man. In so the man. Yeah, absolutely. And in the United States, there really is only one vaccine available. Um, you will hear Gardasil. Um, it's a nine-valent vaccine, again, which means that it protects against nine subtypes of HPV. Um, th that's the only vaccine that's available. In the that's the one in the United States. Right. Is that different from the one in Europe? So in Europe, I believe there are still some other, there's a Gardasil 4 valence, which right. only contains four. Um, and in the past, there was a vaccine called Severix, which only was the two-valent vaccine, only, again, 16 and 18. And we don't expect from the audience to remember all those names that you say, but if you are interested to know more details about the different type of vaccines, please write us and we can repeat again uh, the different type of vaccines, the ones who exist in the United States as well as in Europe. Um, an interesting question going back to cancer again, uh, but you know, why don't we make a break of a couple of minutes First of all, again, to thank everybody for joining us this evening. To remind you that this is the first of our uh, Talking to the Expert program here at the Mott Center. And uh, we would like maybe if there is a, a direct question, if somebody would like to use the, the speaker and would like that we unmute if you have any questions. If there is anybody who have a question, please unmute yourself and uh, you can bring the discussion or the conversation, or if you have any suggestion. Is it okay with you? Of course. I know that it's sometimes a challenge that 
uh, Alicia, you will let me know if somebody either raise their hands or unmute, mm -hmm. and then we can uh, we can allow the person to ask the question. Sure. So I, I had a, uh, it's uh, Steve Crowitz here. I have a question, if I, if I may, and that is uh, given the current state of the Pap smear. I would assume there's going to be an evolution in terms of the technology used for that, and uh, specifically, um, most uh, specifically, I, I, I would expect uh, things like uh, uh, next generation sequencing or other modern approaches to be um, adopted. Uh, do you, uh, are you aware of any of these um, types of um, assays being uh, developed, which would permit even earlier detection and? and um, possible uh, modalities of treatment? That's a great question. So, you know, I think the idea of the pap smear is sort of a uh, population-based screening study. So I, I think that um, as such, you sort of have to do the, the low-tech but high-volume approach, if that makes sense, um, to screening. And so at this point, um, you know, a lot of our pap smears are automated, which allows us to do a lot more. The identification of specific HPV um, subtypes have, have really changed and revolutionized the algorithm that we use for treatment um, in that we can really predict. So uh, infection with HPV is actually a better predictor of outcome than anything that a pap smear is going to show us. Uh, and so really it identification of HPV subtypes um, has sort of revolutionized our approach to treatment. In terms of next-gen sequencing at this point, we are not there yet, I expect. So can I, can I ask you, because uh, this is an, in, a fascinating question, but I don't know if everybody is familiar with this uh, next-gen generation sequencing. Could you tell us a little what is the meaning of last generation and next generation sequencing? So next-gen sequencing is really sequencing of the DNA of the cell to really establish which cells potentially have either a pre-malignant potential or the potential to become a more invasive cancer. Um, so at this point, we I'm not aware of any technology that allows us to do that in a large population screening way. Um, I, I expect that you're right in that um, I'm sure there are companies that are actively working on that. I, I just don't know of any. It will be the more towards the personalized medicine in terms of what the specific. Uh, and but that brings us to another question that is here. Is there a genetic component to cervical cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, we hear that frequently. And so at this point, there is not a known genetic component to cervical cancer. Um, you know, we, we will hear a lot of, of sort of their the patients family members have had a lot of cancer and so cervical cancer was sort of the next cancer to happen um, and that it was genetic but there, there is there's no data at this point to say that cervical cancer is a hereditary cancer yeah so it, this is a, another example of a type of cancer that is not transmitted by generations we cannot blame our parents to give us a gene that uh, this is really an environmental cancer. Uh, and I think we have another example like gastric cancer yeah, or, or liver cancer and so on, who are really uh, the result of an inflammatory process or the chronic inflammation that is happening due to viral infections. Um, what stage is the majority of cervical cancer diagnosed? Yeah, so the Luckily for us, the majority of cervical cancer is really um, in an early stage and really is treatable and curable with either just surgery um, or chemotherapy and radiation. And really, you know, the goal and all our goals as, as GYN oncologists and as physicians is really to see that um, there is no woman or man anywhere, either in the US or in the world that dies of an HPV associated malignancy. That is the ultimate goal. And I think cervical cancer is another example because it was one of the killers uh, many years ago. I mean, the number of women who were dying of cervical cancer was incredible. So and that could change when the pap smear came in. So if you look at um, you know gynecologic cancers in the United States and in the world, 
cervical cancer, the most common cause of gynecologic cancer death in the world, not so much in the United States. And that really goes to hopefully, um, you know, screening, prevention, treatment opportunities that we have here that perhaps third world countries or other places do not have. Um, so we have come a long way. We're just not there. And then again, as the emphasis for all of us, how important it is to work on prevention and early detection for all the different cancers. Uh, we have a, a comment here. Uh, if I can help with epitype questions, a great starting point is, and there is a link uh, in the website. Uh, thank you for that information. If uh, anybody there, you can look in the chat. There is some uh, statistics, I think, about the cancer and so on. I don't think I can open up, but. Uh, Everybody so the other, um, so to that same point, there are large, there are a number of websites um, that we would recommend that if you are interested, curious, have questions about that perhaps we didn't answer or I didn't answer um, in enough detail. The American Cancer Society has a great website um, on cervical cancer prevention, treatment stages, um, as well as the Centers for Disease Control. So um, they will tell you sort of the vaccine. You can you know to the level of vaccination rates in your city, in your county, in your state, um, compared to the population cancer death rates in your state versus the population um, as well. So really great websites to get this information. I have received some questions, a woman asking, you know, if I vaccinate my daughter at the age of nine, how I know that she's not going to become an infarctant and that she may not never have a child. And they, they are afraid of vaccinating their daughters at such an age. What would you recommend? Yeah, so, you know, the, the data, so HPV vaccine has been around for a long time. Like we said, it's been around for at least 15 years. So we have a lot of data on its safety and its efficacy. And there is no data that says that um, vaccinating your child will increase the risk of infertility. Um, the other common misconception is also that, um, you know, vaccinating your child will increase um, sexual promiscuity or that they're more likely to be sexually active. And really, again, um, there is no data that says that vaccinating your child will increase their risk of having developing or having sexual activity or having um, more frequent sexual partners. There, there is just no data. So yeah. what we recommend is that at the same time that your child is getting their standard vaccinations, whether that's at 12, 14, um, that you include the HPV vaccine as part of that vaccination set. Um, the vaccine, which you, you may, we may be getting to, really depending on the age can be either two doses or three doses. Um, and so really should be very easy to add that to the vaccines that they're already getting. So going on to the cancer again, just to start wrapping up as uh, we are getting almost at the 45 minutes. Um, what is the rate of progression of cervical cancer? So if, I, if a patient is diagnosed with stage one, or it has a stage one, it has not been identified, uh, is she going to die at six months and two what, what can you answer to that question? So the progression of uh, what we know about cervical cancer is that the progression from a normal cervical cell, one that's become, that becomes infected with HPV, to a cervical cancer can be anywhere between six to 10 years. So it's a very long time. And it's a silent time, unfortunately. Yeah? Correct. But it's not so silent if you are getting your screening, right? Yeah. So exactly. it su suggests that there is really an opportunity there to catch cervical cancer before it ever becomes a cancer um, and to treat it before it ever becomes a cancer. It's a very important, yes. So the disease is telling us, I am here, but we need to have our ears open and, and look at um, Do you find that most men know that they can contract HPV or it's mainly associated with women? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, unfortunately, HPV has sort of become a disease burden for women. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of our discussion today really suggests that it's important that we understand that HPV is a disease that affects both men and women, um, and that men be cognizant of that, that boys get vaccinated against HPV, um, just like girls should get vaccinated against HPV, and that really it's a shared burden, 
right? It's a shared societal burden um, that we treat HPV-related diseases. Thank you. I think this is a very good point because I still remember when teaching, even to medical students, about sexual transmitted disease and when we touch HPV, immediately was, oh no, that, that's a problem of the woman. And I think Dr. Gogor is, is putting us very clear, this is a disease of the partner, of the couple. And prevention has to go for both. So should the boys be uh, immunized? Absolutely, 100%. Um, boys and girls, the recommendations are starting from the age of nine to 45 can be vaccinated. Um, so again, if you have boys, if you have girls, um, the discussion should be with your pediatrician to have them both vaccinated as part of their standard vaccination series. I hope that is a, we have another question. What preventing measures can a patient take if they have contracted a high risk strain, a viral strain alongside regular pubs and colostomy? Yeah, that's also a great question. So really, um, HPV virus infection for the most part is self-limited um, and generally your immune system will fight off the HPV just like it fights off another. So anything that keeps your immune system healthy, so no smoking. So if you're a smoker, to stop smoking. Um, again, prevention, going to your gynecologist at the routine time for the regular visits with the appropriate treatments. Um, there is some data about um, in really smoking, taking good care of yourself, sleep, moderating your stress. I mean, none of that is going to be able to be tested. The stress, moderate stress. Somebody can have moderate stress at this time. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, anything so that exercise ma yeah. maintains your immune system, exactly. Maintains your immune system um, is, is what will help you fight your HPV infection, along with. And, and you are right, because it's known, especially in adults that when they are immune suppressed, HPV appears. Especially also men. Uh, we know that men who have immune suppressed or a very strong uh, elderly people where the immune system is suppressed, one characteristic is that they start having HPV. So patients that, are, uh, that have gotten transplants that are on immune suppressive medications, um, patients that have infections with H HIV um, are all at higher risk of developing cervical so taking care, prevention, strengthening the immune system. And if there is any signs, go early and detect it early. So we, we're taking the, we're getting the picture there. Absolutely. We're getting the picture. And, and adding to that picture, uh, there is a very interesting question from uh, one in the audience. Can you speak to the link between cervical cell dysplasia and vitamin D deficiency? So, you know, there, there is not a clear relationship as far as I know. Um, there is some data in the literature that suggests that vitamin B supplementation um, may help in terms of um, maintaining a good immune response and potentially decreasing your risk of HPV infection. I don't know that that's ever been studied particularly, um, but certainly, Maintain, anything that maintains a healthy immune system, whether that's vitamin B supplementation or not, um, is important in terms of just generally good health and taking good care of your cervix. Fantastic. Um, I don't know if there is an additional questions from the public. Um, if you still, we have a few minutes now for questions from the public directly, if you want to open your uh, microphone. Um, We have still another question here. Are there different cervical cancer screening protocols for people with HIV? With HIV? Oh. Yeah, uh, so that, that's a great question. So the ASCCP, which is our um, clinical society for colposcopy, has very specific algorithms uh, for patients. At this point, the screening is the same, um, but there is a little bit more of an intense treatment algorithm for patients with HIV compared to patients that are not immune compromised. Is that clear? Good. Any other aspect of this? I don't know. I cannot see one of the questions. Uh, Alisa, you can go down. Um, 
there is still we have a we have another five minutes if you can uh, just to open for questions. I think we have covered the majority uh, of the, the subjects that we had. Um, we talk about the risk of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there is anything else there. Okay, so again, I hope if we can um, wrap it up. The message that we have is that the health of the cervix is not a task only for the woman. It's a task of the couple, if they are a couple. And that prevention starts in early age. If you want to protect your daughter, because we always think that our daughters are the, the purest and nicest in the world, but we have to accept the reality that we don't know who they were will be your fr their friends. So if you want to protect your daughters, even they are the the holies of the holies, maybe their future husband will not be the one. Vaccinate your daughters. And if you protect also your daughters, vaccinate your son. Go to your doctor for a regular checkup. And if there is a sign, don't start trying to fix it with strange things. Have an exam, have your pap smear, your PCR, I know this, this is the genetic way to check for the presence of the virus because early detection saves lives. Dr. Gogol, I want to thank you for the fantastic explanation. I think all the public here has been able to understand. If there are questions, where can we find you? Um, so absolutely, again, thank you very much for um, letting me be here today. It is uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart and I'm sure um, on my partners as well. And so, um, yes, if there are any questions, um, you can find us at the Gynecology Oncology Clinic at Carmanos Cancer Institute or Wayne State. Um, I'm happy to provide my, my name, contact information, um, and an email address should there be any further questions. But again, as you said, the most important thing is prevention. Um, and that's really the message that we're here to spread. Fantastic. So again, if you need additional information about Dr. Godoy and where how to find you, you can write us and we will be happy to share that information. So before we conclude, I want to let you know that uh, next month we are going to have a fascinating subject that I'm sure many of you are looking forward to here. And that is, should pregnant women be vaccinated? We are confronting this, this, this COVID-19 pandemic, more and more women, pregnant women are showing serious complications. Should be vaccinated, should be protected with the vaccine. And the expert uh, next month to answer the questions is Dr. Bernard Donick, uh, MD. Uh, he is a member of uh, Wednesday University and an expert, a world expert in the area of vaccination during pregnancy. So I'm looking forward to having Dr. Donick next month on March 11th. So mark your calendars. March 11th at 6 p.m. Should pregnant women be vaccinated with Dr. Donick? And with that, we conclude. And I'm looking forward to see you next month. Thank you very much. <laughs>